On today's podcast, I have with me Justin Sinceri. He is a licensed marriage and family therapist that is in California. He's done a lot of work with teenagers, starting to do more work with adults, all of which he's helping them understand how they can go from being in a fight or flight stage or shutdown stage, fight, flight, or freeze, as we like to say in the psychological world. So he's helping them go from that into feeling like they can be safe and social to know that they are okay and that they can connect in a positive way with the people around them. But even more than that, he's the host of a podcast all about this polyvagal theory called Stuck Not Broken. Here are my key pies takeaways from today's episode with Justin Sinceri. I love polyvagal theory. I think it is amazing. I was actually first introduced to it when um, I was going through my yoga teacher training and we got to the part with trauma sensitive yoga. And really it was at that point that I realized so much of what happens to us in our lives and especially things that create a traumatic experience can have a it changes what happens in our body. There's a book called The Body Keeps the Score, which is fascinating about how our body actually holds on to trauma. And I don't use the word trauma lightly, but I also think that there are things that happen to us in our lives that are traumatic and that we need to recognize that and and call it what it is. I have spent more than a decade trying to convince myself that I didn't experience a trauma that I did experience when I was in um, 11 and 12 years old. And so anyway, like it just makes a difference. It, it does. And again, trauma is not the same as stress. Trauma is not the same as doing something you don't want to do. I think there are people who overuse the term, but But trauma is when you feel overwhelmed and powerless, overwhelmed that you are in danger and powerless to do anything about it. And so let's just call it what it is. And when something like that happens, it can actually take hold in our body. And polyvagal theory was born out of basically that concept. This is such an important episode. Let's dive in. Hey, my name is Kimberly Beam Holmes, and this is It Starts With Attraction, where we discuss how to become the most attractive that you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as us insiders call it, the pies. You can become more attractive to others, and most importantly, to yourself. We will teach you how. Let's dive in. Justin, I am so excited to be speaking with you today. I've been a listener to your podcast for quite a while and just love everything you're doing with polyvagal theory. So thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really happy to be here. So thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm going to start with a super easy question for you. (laughs) Just right at the beginning. What is polyvagal theory and why should we care? It's a... It's a... Every time I answer this, I feel like I make it more complex than it needs to be. So the simple, simple answer is it is the science of how human be- well, how mammals connect and how we respond to danger. I think that's the easiest explanation, easiest one-liner. And it's not just for humans. It's actually for mammals as well. And so that's a basic, basic top-level idea, I think. And why we should care is because this, this impacts our every moment throughout every day. You know, So this, these polyvagal things that I'm sure we'll get into are going to – we feel them. We can notice them within ourselves, within other other people, in our relationships, and our kids, like every day, all day. 
And um, it, it helps to explain why we feel the way we feel, why we react the way we react. So it's really just this fundamental science of us and, and human beings and how we connect and how we respond to danger as well. Mm, yeah. So what is what does polyvagal mean? What is the vagal part of it? What, how, explain that to us. Uh, so I'll okay. I'll go as simply as possible. Doctor Stephen Porter's he created the polyvagal theory, and he discovered uh, I think back in the nineties that the vagus nerve in particular has multiple uses. It's not simply uh, this parasympathetic sympathetic um, differentiation of how our autonomic nervous system responds to life. But uh, there's actually two parasympathetic branches and one sympathetic. So we have this function, this one sympathetic branch that's um, responsible for social connection. And we have another parasympathetic branch that's responsible for immobilization. And then we also have the sympathetic branch, which is responsible for the flight fight, the mobilization kind of energy. So the, the vagus nerve, it's called polyvagal theory. I don't, the, the vagus nerve is important to know, but my interest is more in the behavioral aspects of it, the interrelational aspects of it, the um, that kind of stuff. You know, how does it apply to us on a daily level that we can all get? No one's going to really be tracking the uh, the activity of their vagus nerve. So that is cool to know. But really, it's like, but can you feel it? Like, because these things, these shifts, you can absolutely feel moment to moment. So that, that's really kind of where my my interest really lies. And as a therapist, this has so much application to to what I do. And I can help myself, but also my clients to to realize and, and look inward and, and to feel these shifts that happen within us. And whether we call it um, sympathetic and dorsal and ventral vagal and high tone and low tone, like all these things are cool to know, but it's really like it, developing a simple language for it is, I think, is, is the most important thing. And how do we apply this to just daily life? Yeah, yeah, because... I'm going to I'm going to give you my understanding of it and please correct me for for the places that I may mess it up. But the vagus nerve is a nerve that basically runs from your throat area it's, all the way it's down. A, the vagus nerve is it's it's really hard to explain. It's it starts the brainstem is is kind of the where things get really significant with polyvagal theory. And there's this concept called neuroception. And with neuroception, we take in information through our senses. And our brainstem sort of uh, decides the level of threat based on the information that it's taking in from the external, but also the internal world. And the, the vagus nerve is the pathway, the conduit, and it stretches from, I believe, from the brainstem all the way down to the gut. And it connects to different organs and muscles. And it has all these different connections, right, throughout the whole body. But the vagus nerve itself is is simply, he, uh, Dr. Porges calls it a conduit. And the way I understand it is it's like a pipeline. And in that conduit or in that pipeline are all these different nerves that go to the brain, but also to the body. So the vagus nerve itself is not the most important thing. The, the brainstem and what the brainstem is receiving as danger or safety. And then what signals get sent to the autonomic nervous system. Because once the brainstem kind of decide, I don't like the word decides, but decides safety or danger or life threat. Once the brainstem decides that, then the autonomic nervous system kind of gets hijacked and utilized for social connection if we're safe or for uh, running away or fighting if we're in danger or for shutting down completely if we're in some sort of significant life threat. 
So it, it the brainstem utilizes the vagus nerve as best I understand it to as a as a as a conduit as a, as a pathway as a pipeline to to kind of take over the autonomic nervous system or to repurpose it. I'll, I'll put it that way to repurpose the parasympathetic stuff and the sympathetic stuff in order to increase the chances of survival. Mm, yeah, got it. So base. Okay. So basically where we're at now for everything we've talked about is depending on the situation around someone perceived realistic. I mean, we'll get into that in a minute, but then the vagus nerve has these two parts to it. One is more of the immobilization. One of more is more of the safety and social part of it that could be taken. Either of those paths could be taken based on what a person is sensing. So it's kind of this connection between our bodies and what's happening in the real world. Yeah. It's the mind body. I, to me, it's the mind body connection. Yeah. But it's not just the two pathways. It's it's um, on the polyvagal ladder. The very simple breakdown is at, at the top of the polyvagal ladder. So is it okay if I kind of go in the polyvagal ladder? With, cause it's yeah, kind of go, right. yeah, go for it. So the polyvagal ladder is how our autonomic nervous system is built or how it evolved in a hierarchical way in our bodies. So at the top of the polyvagal ladder, and the ladder is a metaphor, so it's not there's no ladder within us. It's a it's a metaphor for, for how these things <laughs> are built so within everyone us. Everyone knows. No ladder. <laughs> so at the top of it is the the biological pathways responsible for social engagement. So that's that would be the face and neck and how it connects to the heart. So the biological pathways that govern these things are at the top of the polyvagal ladder. Okay, so in the middle of the polyvagal ladder is the uh, flight-fight system, the sympathetic system, and that governs or utilizes the arms um, for you know fight energy, the upper body, shoulders, and the flight energy utilizes the um, the legs for for running away for evasion. So that's the middle, and that that lives that system lives in our chest as best I understand it. It's kind of it lives in that in there. The bottom of the polyvagal ladder lives in our gut, and that's the shutdown system. And that's the system that's responsible for shutting down, disconnecting, dissociating, going numb. Um, yeah, so it, it's really just immobilization. Playing dead is, is a pretty simple way to put it. And we, you know, play, po- possums play dead. Um, a mouse plays dead if a if a cat gets it in its jaws. It's not it's not dead, but it plays dead. And that that, but also all of these things help to increase the chances of survival. So if I play dead in, in a certain situation, that might actually increase my chances of getting out of that situation. Or if you think about like a deer or a gazelle that is, has been gotten by a, um, by a lion and dragged back to a cave, right. Or wherever lions live. And so the lion, it might bring it to the cubs in the cave or the lion house. And that gazelle, it's it's not dead. It's shut down. It's past. It looks dead. And so while the lion cubs are pretending to hunt it or playing around with it or whatever they do, the gazelle might sense, neurocept, this opportunity to come out of the shutdown. And then you have to go up the polyvagal ladder. So that, the, the gazelle's at the bottom of the polyvagal ladder. But if it neurocepts, there's an opportunity for escape here. It'll go up the, its own polyvagal ladder because it's a mammal, has its own ladder with all these steps on it. It'll go up into its sympathetic flight-fight energy. The first stop is going to be fight energy, but they're both sympathetic, but the first stop is, is fight. So that gazelle coming out of shutdown is going to have this huge surge of energy that comes with it that will allow it to utilize its muscles to push up off the ground or maybe even um, 
whatever gazelles, gazelles do, maybe use its neck to throw a, a cub off it or something like that. Or, or So it'll have this huge surge of energy. And then once it uses that surge of energy to get enough space, like by pushing or, or whatever it does, then it'll use its flight sympathetic energy to actually leave the situation, run back to its gazelle family or herd, and back to, ideally, back to its own state of safety. So once it uses that energy, it'll get all the way back to the top of its own polyvagal ladder, reconnect with its family, and hopefully get its safety pathways activated and go back to life as normal. But that, that's kind of the idea of the polyvagal ladder is if you're in the bottom of it, well, actually, no matter where you're at, you have to go up the ladder to get to the safety state, which is where ideally we want to be. But you also go down the ladder in this in the opposite sequence. So if like you and I are probably in our mostly safe and social state, I get kind of anxious doing these. So I'm a little bit down my ladder. But for the most part, you know, we can make eye contact even though it's on a screen. We can make eye contact and have uh, a fuller range of voice. It's called vocal prosody. We can socially engage, right? We can hear each other and we're, we're socially engaging. But if there was some sort of cue of danger, like one of my microphone went off and you couldn't hear me, you might drop down your polyvagal ladder into some flight energy and start kind of maybe it's like a minor panic or some anxiety. Be like, well, what's going on? Like you would drop down your ladder. You're not actually in danger in that situation. But same thing. If you can't be safe and social, you drop down your ladder. Now, if we're in a situation where we can't run away from it, then we drop down we're still in the sympathetic state. We go, we go down into our fight energy. If we can't run away from it, then we access our fight energy. But if we can't fight against whatever it is, then we drop all the way down into our shutdown state. And um, we do that play dead kind of thing. Yeah. So I love, I always love your stories on your podcast that, that you tell. Um, how does this relate for an adult individual? So, what might that look like? I mean, you don't know me, but in the situations that you know of people, I know you've done a lot with kids, but, um, or even for, for teenagers, like what does this look like for a person in normal everyday life? I think it looks kind of like, I think it looks kind of like, um, what I just laid out. So normal everyday life, we, we kind of just do what we do. We socially engage. Well, let's talk about pre COVID. Although of course, COVID quarantines affect us majorly, but just life pre COVID, we would socially engage with each other. We'd hang out. We'd go out to restaurants and um, see each other at work, right? We'd hopefully, ideally, be in our safe and social state as much as possible. But things throughout the day can drop us down our ladder into our, like, flight-fight energy. And it could be something as benign as, um, you know, someone cut you off on the freeway. But it could also be a boss yelled at you. And this, that, that's going to take you out of your safe and social state. Your, their their tone of voice, their posture, their the words that they're saying, all these things will take you out of your, but potentially stay, take you out of your safe and social state. Not all of us are, some of us might be more anchored in the state of safety. And, and that has a lot to do with upbringing and history of co-regulation and uh, the ability to kind of be mindful in the moment and practice that. Like, so it kind of, there's a lot that goes into that. But generally, just those day-to-day things can bring us down our ladders. So that, but if, but if we're well-regulated enough, we can self-regulate to the top of our ladder and just kind of deal with life and, and get through it. Right. But, um, I think what we see as adults and the people who listen are listening right now, like what might be relevant is that this isn't just today. It's not just this moment, but this has a lot to do with, with upbringing. This has a lot to do with childhood and attachments and, uh, feeling safe and connected to your own family. So even though today we feel these polyvagal shifts, 
it, 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 it there's a history, there's a lifetime of of this stuff happening. And if you have a childhood that's potentially more traumatic or not as, I'll just say good enough, not good enough nurturing and whatnot, that affects you. That that stays with you later on in life. And the idea is that with with these polyvagal states on the ladder, I, ideally, we want to spend as much time as we can in our safe and social state. We want to be able to access that. And if we drop down it to be able to self-regulate back up to it. But in order to self-regulate, it kind of relies on having a, a really solid history of co-regulation. So your parents and loved ones and friends being able to be those safe individuals. And if you have safe individuals in your life who can provide these cues of safety, like that's what that's co-regulation that we're providing cues of safety to each other, then the child or even us as adults, like our friends, uh, when we co-regulate with our friends, hopefully we can pick up on those cues of safety and feel that, okay, I am safe. Hopefully our nervous, our brainstem picks up, this is a safe situation. I am safe. It's okay to, to not be in this flight fight energy. So these things affect us all day, every day. Um, it, I don't think it, it's nothing that goes away. We always need to survive. So these, these states are always within us and the, the biological imperative to connect with each other doesn't go away. But uh, the history of, of how, how much access you had to this, this, these states of safety impact you later on in life. And it makes it more difficult. So I think adults might struggle with that. You know, like they, they get the idea and they want to be in their safety state, but accessing it is a major challenge. Mm-hmm. Do you think that people who had difficulty, they weren't modeled good co-regulation when they were children by parents or caretakers? Do you think that they have more difficulty as adults doing that for someone else, their spouse or their kids or their friends? Yeah. <laughs> the simple <laughs> answer is yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It is. It's part of. So let's get. I'll get a more complex. So, the the ability to do that for somebody else, you kind of have to. Well, not just access those biological pathways, but feel comfortable in doing so. And if, if you haven't had a nice, solid history, <coughs> excuse me, history or practice, or if you haven't built up the, the strength of those pathways, then when you when you do access them, it feels extremely uncomfortable. So if, if you're not used to making eye contact with people and being still and listening, if you're not used to dealing with high levels of stress and then your child throws a tantrum, your ability to maintain your path, to stay in your biological pathways, to stay anchored in those pathways, it's, it's compromised. It's, it's, a, it's a big challenge. And that's, uh, yeah, so yeah, absolutely. These, it will affect us later on. And, and that's not because we're defective. It's not because we're bad parents exactly. It's not because we're, there's something wrong with us. It's just our, these pathways haven't been built up enough. And when, and when we do access them, it feels weird. It feels weird to like be still sometimes or to make eye contact with people or to feel trust or to feel vulnerable. So in relationships, having those feelings, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a healthy way can be so uncomfortable that we revert, we, our nervous system sort of, the, like feeling those things can be a cue of danger in and of itself, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So even though we've received enough cues of safety to go up in the top of our ladder, the, the experience of being in the top of the ladder is a cue of danger in, in a lot of ways. So so we drop right back down. So I um, I think I have a pretty good anchoring in my safe and social state. 
I don't know what the perfect way looks like, but I feel like I'm a pretty good, pretty good place there, right? But if somebody dances in front of me, I drop way down my ladder. Like that's just, you know what I mean? That's not going to happen. Like I, that's, I feel uncomfortable with that. If somebody <laughs> like is singing and makes eye contact with me, like that's too much. Like for my nervous system, like whoa, <laughs> I can deal with your singing, but look, look elsewhere. So it's like <laughs> I have enough access to my safety state, but there might be things that my nervous system is just not used to. And dancing is absolutely one of those things. That's not, I'm not going to do that. Dancing in front of me, like leave me alone. Singing, making eye contact. Those are things that like it's, it's overload. It's too much for my system. And I don't know if that'll ever get better. I kind of don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, these things affect us and the, the history of co-regulation, the history of being in these safety states uh, absolutely impacts us later on in life. Yeah. Mm. So no mariachi bands for you. No. Mm. Not having it no. or anything. And if I go to a wedding, I'll be at the table. I'll maybe do a slow dance with my wife. Maybe. That's yeah. about it. That's about it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I went to a wedding where I was the only person sitting and I was perfectly at peace. <laughs> I was so at peace there. I was fine. You were in your safe and social state. I was right good. There. Right. I there. was so good. It was a beautiful night. I was so good there. And people were dancing. I'm like, I'm perfectly at peace here. <laughs> Don't look at me, but you can go dance. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So the, so the million dollar question here is how do we get in, not only in our safe and social state, but also be really good at co-regulating with our family, yeah. friends, like what does this look like? Well, and so the, the, how do I co-regulate is a great question and it's where we want to be, but you, you simply cannot until you first get to your safety state. It's like that has to come first because if you're not, you're not co-regulating. Um, if, if if someone comes to, if I'm a therapist, right? So if someone comes to me and, and co-regulation is a big part of therapy, but if someone comes to me and I'm in my flight energy and I'm like wide-eyed and panicky and fidgety, right? And I can't just like be there with them and they're in their own flight state and their own panicky energy. I'll, if I give those cues, I'm just reinforcing their own flight energy. So I, to co-regulate, it's, it's essential that we are first self-regulated before we co-regulate, right? And what's what's difficult is that it's hard to self-regulate if you haven't had co-regulation. So it's this catch-22, like, loop kind of thing. But ultimately, yeah, we have to be self-regulated before we co-regulate, I think. Yeah, that's best, best I understand. Like, you just have to. So how do we co-regulate? Well, first thing is to self-regulate. So how do you self-regulate? And this is this is one where I have a hard time saying, "Well, just do this or that." I think it's a very individualized thing. So for for someone, dancing might be their self regulation. Like when they dance, when they move around, it's a great way to utilize their flight fight energy and to feel safe and to feel connected. And that's their thing. For me, that's not even on my map. That's just not even maybe by myself, but not really. But probably not singing. Maybe by myself in front of people. No. But for someone, for you, for someone else, singing is it. And they feel at peace with the world or in tune with themselves or they finally have access to their feelings and they can use that to, to self-regulate. My, uh, meditation, for some people, I, I think it's a, for me, I, I can do that. I'm good with that. For many people, sitting still meditation is not going to happen. Walking meditation and just kind of being mindful of your surroundings and whatnot, that might be more okay, you know? So it's... um it's really hard to say like, do this to be self-regulated. It really has a lot to do with 
I think everything to do with like what for you and your specific nervous system, your specific body, like what works for you. And so to figure that out, you have to be curious. I know for certain dancing is not for me. Like I just, I just, I just know, but drawing is, that's just, I feel super grounded when I do that. I feel very self-regulated. I can tap into some feelings and let that out through my drawing. Right. So meditating, I can, for the most part, I can sit with my feelings pretty well and let them do their thing and kind of be more grounded in the present moment. So like what works for you? What, what, what brings you closer to the present moment? What brings you a little bit, even a little bit closer to being within your body? You know what I mean? But that, that requires that you be curious and be interested in that answer. So you, you kind of have to, even just throughout the day, just like notice like what, who, who am I around that, that I feel more self-regulated? What location, like what place do I feel you know, more in the moment or what, what do I do that brings me more to the moment? So it's like what environment, what people, what activity, music I think is, can be a universal self-regulation tool, but what kind of music, what kind of music can change person to person and state to state when I'm in a, a, a very dorsal vagal, that shutdown state, I like quiet. I don't want to listen to music. I like quiet, but then I might feel a pull toward some like, um, what's the word for it? Like the postal service. It's a band called the postal service or uh, something like, like where it's calmer. There's no, there's not a whole lot of energy to it, but it's just calm, slow, quiet. Um, so though the music is kind of, I don't know the word, it's the kind of alternative, but not the like, no, it's not really grunge alternative. I don't know. It's the kind of independent indie kind of alternative stuff. I don't know the best word for it, but that, that feels like NPR type of music. I can. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. 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 So it kind of feels more right. And then as I come out of shutdown into my sympathetic state, heavy metal, hip hop, things that have, that are louder, things that are louder and more energetic and have a flatter tone of voice or even some screaming, maybe those feel right. And I'll tune in, like I'll, I just feel like it's time to listen to heavy metal, right? And as I come out of that and into my safety state, I might be pulled more toward like oldies or things like with like Etta James has a anything with a very prosodic voice, like a lot of melody to it, a lot of ups and downs. So the, anything that kind of, yeah, has more prosody has more of a sing songy kind of quality to it. Those things speak to that safety state. So these music can help come up the ladder, but it also can just like speak to where we're at on our ladder. And if you can figure out, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just pulled toward heavy metal. So I'm going to listen to that and I'm going to do so mindfully. I'm not just going to like headbang and yell as I drive my car, but I'm actually going to like, what does it feel like? What does my body want to do as I listen to whatever it is? And that's kind of like a cue or it's a, it's a impulse. So as your body gets more aggressive in the, in the top half, like that's some fight energy coming up and you know, you can dance it out. You can mosh pit it out if you have well after COVID, i guess you can um what head banging out if you want to but you, like as this stuff comes up how does your body want to move and then as it does that you might feel like now i'm ready for the now i'm ready for something a little bit softer a little, something more prosodic that's that feels safer and less energetic so point being music i think is universal but how we utilize that person to person is probably different movement is universal but for me dancing no running maybe swimming i love swimming so it's all movement, but so what that looks like person to person, I think it's going to change. So self-regulation on the individual level 
I just really encourage people to be curious about what works for them and write in. Yeah, like write, make a list. Like, yes, this is a good thing for me. And no, this is not a good thing for me. And the next step would be, so the things that are yeses for me, like when are they a yes for me? So if swimming for me is a yes when I'm in a very either safe and social state where I can be playful with my kids, or even if I'm in like a flight fight state where I just need to get some energy out and I just need to swim some laps and really feel the resistance of the water against my muscles. So yeah, make a list and then what works for you based on what state you're in, I think would be could be pretty darn helpful. It's like a menu of, uh, of options for self-regulation. But then also what location do I feel most safe in? And my, my office here, I've, I have these, you can see on the screen, I have a soft light. I like these soft lights. They just feel right for my nervous system. Um, the, I like space. I'm a pretty tall person. If I'm too cramped, I don't feel safe. I, I get a little bit antsy, a little bit antsy. Uh, so what, what, what environment feels right for you? What colors feel right? Green, greens and blues are pretty universal, but for some, for one individual, they, they might want a darker space because they're more of in a shutdown state. They might want some dark with some very dim lights with the door closed, or maybe like the, some light coming through the blinds that might just speak to their nervous system. And that's not bad. That's not wrong. It's just the next step for them in their self in the process of climbing the ladder. That's just the next step of self-regulation is, is to feel like this feels right. So I'm going to kind of pursue this and mindfully pursue it and really feel what it feels like to be in, in the dark room with the dim lights. Like, what does it feel like? What does my body want next? And your body might want to just open its eyes next and reorient to the environment. And then your body might feel some energy come in. Maybe it's time to get up and, and uh, I don't know, go uh, do whatever it is. I don't know. But that, that's kind of the idea for self-regulation is what works for you. Speci- and specifically, specifically, sorry, what works for you in whatever state you're in. Mm. Because the point is to get to that safe and social, which really the safe and social is you feel um, like, so how would you define that or describe what you feel, what a person should feel like when they are safe and social? The, the, I, the goal is to have as much, much access to the safe and social pathways as possible. I don't expect people to be there all the time. And the experience of it is probably pretty similar universally The But what it'll feel like is you'll have, You'll, you'll feel more in the present moment. You'll be able to smile. You'll be able to be playful. You you might feel relaxed. It kind of depends on how much of the flight fight energy you have mixed in with the safe and social state. Well, so we've talked about the basic states, but there's also mixed states. So we can mix these different states together. The safe and social state can mix with the flight fight state, and that's called play. So you're mobilized, but you're safe, and that's, that's called play. So being in a safe and social state might feel like play, but you could also mix a safe and social state with your bottom of the ladder shutdown state. And that's called stillness where you can be still, but you're safe. You're immobilized, but you're not in danger. You're not immobilizing because of a life threat. You're immobilizing because you can, and you just want to relax maybe or, or meditate or just breathe or whatever. So what does safety feel like? It could feel like those things. It, it could, I think generally there's more, capacity to smile to make eye contact to utilize your facial muscles that's kind of how you know if you can if you can use your neck and look around and tilt your head as you're you know listening to people that means you have access to those pathways because those are when you're in a a flight energy like a flight fight state you're not making eye contact you're not making safe safe eye contact at least you might be glaring at people you might be like wide eyes looking for danger but you're pretty stoic things are tense you're not really utilizing your neck muscles to tilt your head to the side and listen to someone and smile. You know, like you don't have access to those. You can't do it. So that, that might be what safety looks like is, is um, 
is some of those pieces, maybe all of them, maybe just a few at a time. I, I think generally it's just you're more relaxed. There's you're more in the moment. You're more in your in your body. You're more aware of what's happening within your body. Your thoughts change. Your thoughts be all, all of our our thoughts change um, through all of these different states, and the thoughts of the safety state are going to be more empathetic, more caring, uh, more positive, more hopeful. The thoughts and the flight fight energy are going to probably be more fear based. Uh, so, someone's out to get me, or that person said this for that reason, and those kind of things. Like it's it's more fear based, I would say, it, or more aggressive or more evasive. And the shutdown thoughts are going to ha- revolve more around like what's the point or worthlessness or that's why I'm so this way. A lot of self-blame and judgment and shame in that in that uh, shutdown state. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's what safety looks like and the thoughts that might be in your head and kind of what it might feel like as well. It, it could look different ways, but those are pretty common. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who um, we were talking about meditation a couple months ago. And she said she started trying meditation, but she just traumatic thoughts from her past was all she could think about to where she would lose her breath. It it was not a good experience for her. And, you know, so as you were talking, I was thinking uh, meditation is touted, right? I mean, you said maybe not for everyone, but generally people are touting it as like, this is something you do in order to calm your nerves and has all these benefits. So at what point do you force yourself to do something to self-regulate like meditation versus just not or staying where you are? And I I don't even know if that's the best way. I got you. No, I got you. I don't, I don't think you force yourself uh, because you're opening yourself up to re-traumatize yourself. So that that's like coming to therapy and me telling you, no, you have to talk about what happened to you. That's that's ridiculous. That all, all I'm, if that person's not ready for that, they're just I'm re-traumatizing them. So if if you go into a a yoga session, and actually I did an interview with someone recently, and they were saying like they they liked yoga, but the final pose, the shavasana, something like that, yeah, shavasana mm-hmm. was not okay for her. Mm. everything else is fine utilizing your muscles to pose and to hold the pose and breathing through it that worked just fine for might might work just fine for somebody but but the pose at the end where i believe you're supposed to like be still right i think you have to like lay still is that right lay still Mm -hmm. so it's a very vulnerable very exposing pose and you have to be still as far as i know so that in and of itself might not be safe for someone who i don't want to go into like specific trauma routes but for someone like that might not be that might not be safe. And the idea, the the reason why is because if your system is prepared for running away or fighting, then immobilizing yourself is is not gonna help. <laughs> you 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 need movement. And so the other things within yoga, like with that I that involve um you know posing and, and holding it, that all involves your muscles, right? So that's a really good way to use some flight fight energy, but in a very calm, uh, predictable, co-regulative way because there's lots of people there. So that your body's prepared to use its muscles. So that makes sense. But in a flight fight energy, your body is not prepared to sit still and or lay still during Shavasana or sit still during class like for the kids that I work with. Like it's just not your body is not prepared for that. It's not um, ready for that. It's not like it's just not going to happen. So you really have to have more access to the top of your ladder, the safe and social state in order to be still and actually be comfortable with it without it being 
re-traumatizing, maybe even healing. But that's and I, that's common. I hear that a lot from from people that that uh, yoga is not safe for them, or uh, doing like some sort of mindfulness mindfulness exercise with your eyes closed is not safe for people. Uh, being still is just it's not it's just not where they're at. You know, they're just, they're kind of stuck there on their polyvagal ladder. So asking someone to be still is not it's just not going to go very far. All right, y'all, we are pausing this week's episode right here, pausing the conversation and going to continue it next week because there is so much really valuable information and things that we talk about that I want there to be enough time and space for you to digest and honestly just reflect on the conversation that Justin and I are having. So be sure that you tune back next week and you will hear part two of my conversation with Justin Sinceri all about polyvagal theory and how we can become more in our safe and social state. But here is the main key pies takeaway that I have so far from the conversation. We have been talking about this polyvagal theory, which is all about, I mean, really when we boil it down, it's all about our bodies feeling like they can be safe and safe enough to want to be social with other people. And so when we get into that fight or flight or shutdown response in our bodies based on what we're seeing in our environment or reacting to the things around us, then it can take us down that ladder, as Justin referred to it, to where we may go into more of that fight response where we are wanting to escape, get out, That's kind of what our body is wanting to do. And so some really great things that we can do when we feel that way in our daily lives is to do something that has to do with movement. So go out and walk or run or dance or do something that you can actually move your body to get some of those emotions out, to get that tension out of your body because that's probably what your body is wanting right there. If you're more of in that shutdown space where you just don't want to move, you want to be more still, maybe you want to find more of a dark room in your house where there's not as much light, there's not as many sensory distractors that you have, then that's probably what your body needs at the time. Go into a place where there can be quiet, where there can be things that, that, aren't going to take you into feeling worse about the situation and be there. The key takeaway so far in the conversation is that it is incredibly important for you to be in tune with your own body and understanding what you need in the moment. What works for you may not be what works for someone else. And just as we ended with the story of my friend who tried meditating, wants to meditate, wanted to be able to do that, but found that for her and the space that she was in, it was not something that was actually helping her to heal or to get back into what we call that safe and social state. And so maybe that's the question you ask yourself. What are the things that I do that help me feel like I'm safe and help me to feel like I want to interact with people, that safe and social state. You probably know some of these things organically off the top of your head about yourself, but over the next week, take some time to realize it. If you get in a fight with your spouse or you disagree with someone at work, what is the reaction that your body has, number one? And then number two, what is it that you feel like you need to do to recover from that interaction. It doesn't just have to be that though. I mean, it could be anything. Maybe you are watching the news and there's something that quote unquote triggers you and leads you to feeling more fearful or angry. What are those things? Just start noticing 
And then from there, after you notice what you're feeling, you stop long enough to get in touch with your emotions. Then from there, say, what is it that I need to do to help myself recover, get back to safe and social? And of course, when we're thinking about getting back to safe and social, we're not thinking about doing things that are going to hurt other people where we're flying off the handle, getting angry at other people because it's going to make us feel better. Nope, that's probably going to make us feel worse and less safe and social. And we're also emphasizing the need for community. When we realize that we need to get back to a safe and social state, we're not only looking out for how can I personally in my body feel better, but how can I feel better in how I relate to a larger society, a larger community, a larger family unit, so to say. So that is my one key pies takeaway from today's episode. Take notice of what causes you to feel like you're out of that safe and social state and then realize and recognize what are the things that you can do to help you get back in it. All right, y'all. Next week, we will continue this amazing conversation. Be sure you come back because next week we are talking all about how do you learn to self-regulate and how do you do what's best for you? So we're going to be talking more about specific tools and tactics that you can begin implementing immediately in your life. You don't want to miss it. Friends, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember to go and subscribe to this podcast and leave an honest review. I love to hear from you guys. So be sure to go and do that. And it will also help more people find the podcast as well. You can always find out more information by going to itstartswithattraction.com for show notes, for updates, and to join the email list so that every Friday you can get an encouraging email that specifically tells you what you can do to work on your pies so that you can become the best that you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Until next week, keep working on your pies and stay strong.